I got with me today Fred Williams. He's going to talk about his journey and give advice to future people who will be in his situation. Um, do you want to start right off with what was the day that your the day of your accident like and and the following weeks? Um, I broke my neck May twelfth, nineteen eighty six, at three p.m. in the afternoon, and uh, I was working two jobs at the time down uh, one in the Bay Area, California. One in Central Valley. Uh, I was a plaster hottie uh, Monday through Friday, and then I wore semi trucks uh, Saturdays and Sundays. And I did that mainly because the uh, the semi truck washing was really good money. Uh, it was $100 a day, and back then $100 a day was was good money. And um, on that particular day, we were coming back from the Bay Area, um, and we had just gotten paid. And a couple of buddies and I decided we were going to stop at a store and get some beer. And we uh, stopped in Livermore, uh, got three six-packs of beer, and we pissed on every sign between there and Modesto, which was the Central Valley where we were living. Uh, when we got into Modesto, um, we went by a friend of mine's house who told me about a month before that he was going to be out of town. And... Uh, I noticed his truck was there and I figured, shoot, I just got paid. His truck's there. I wonder if I could, uh, take that. So I, uh, got out of the car, went over to his rig and he told me that he was going to leave me the key underneath the mat. And, uh, I looked underneath the mat and the key wasn't there, but he had a butterfly ignition. It's it have two ears on it. It was a Bronco pickup truck, which was really an international scout pickup truck. Uh, but Bronco had it for, I think, 77, 78 or something like that. And he had big old 36-inch uh, swampers on it. And it was uh, souped up, big engine, uh, made a lot of nice noises when it went down the road. And uh, I turned the the key ignition and it started up. And I took off in the truck and I was half lit already. And the guys that had dropped me off had left, and I went to find them because it was his brother's truck, and I didn't want him to think that I had stolen it or anything like that. So I wanted to make sure that he knew that the, his brother, Mark, had, let me, had told me he was going to leave it and let me take it. So I went looking for the guys, and I couldn't find them. And uh, I decided to stop and get uh, another six-pack of beer as if I didn't have enough. And I don't know if I said this already, but I was 21 years old. Okay. And it was uh, three weeks after I turned 21. Um, and so I stopped. I got another six-pack of beer, and I had the six-pack on the side of me. And I was driving down the road doing about 65 miles an hour. Alone in the truck? Alone in the truck um, on back roads that I knew real well. I mean, it was in my neighborhood, basically. I'd been there for 20 years. And I started making the truck chirp the tires at 65 so i would give it gas and let off and it would go and i was just laughing my ass off i thought it was funny as hell and then the beer spilt down my pants went down the crack of my ass and it was ice cold and i started laughing and i took the beer and i set it to the side and i put it in the case and i looked up and there was a 15 mile an hour corner and i knew the road well i knew it really well i knew that was there i just didn't realize i was at the end of the road and uh, 
pole position was a video game back in those days that was really popular. And I loved it. And I thought, I'm going to make this corner. In a split second, I'm thinking pole position. And I turned the wheel and the truck slid sideways, but it hit the curb. And when it hit the curb, it got airborne. And it rolled into a big old cement uh, ditch um, and caught on fire. And when I didn't have my seatbelt on, and when it started rolling, the first place it crushed was the right side of the vehicle where I was at. I had been pushed to the right side of the vehicle. The roof hit me right there on that corner of the window, uh, split my head open. Is that the scar? Uh-huh. Uh, gouged down my skull, cut my ear off, and broke my neck in two places. Um, I wasn't paralyzed yet. When the truck came to rest on the on its back, um, the, there was a guy that was following behind me that I didn't know was there. And he came and grabbed me by the shoulders, picked me up by the shoulders like this, and that's when I became paralyzed. Because you're never supposed to move somebody that's got a broken neck. You keep them solid, you, know, you put them on a gurney, you take them to the hospital, and you try not to move them at all, do especially you, the neck. Did you, in the, in the months following, did you hold any resentment toward that man? No, and actually he was the brother of the guy whose truck I had. There was actually five brothers, yeah. and he was one of them. And he just happened to see me pass his house because I had gone to his house to look for his brother who had dropped me off. Mm -hmm. So one of the brothers. Um, and, but he would never talk to me for about five years. Um, so at, at any rate, so they, when I was in the ambulance, I apparently started waving my hands and telling them, please don't take me to jail. <laughs> which was you know it's kind of funny uh and they took me to the hospital uh while i was at the hospital i the i was on my back and the only thing that was hurting was the back of my head and that was probably because my my head had been hit so hard um but the my mom came to the hospital my sister came to the hospital my brother came to the hospital um they're all talking to me and stuff and the doctor said you know is this your son and does he sound normal mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, he's, that's him. He's, he's, it's, he doesn't have a brain injury. So that, so, which was a great thing. Yes. Because um, when you get hit that hard in the head, that's very serious possibility. Um, so um, I was in uh, Doctors Medical Center, I believe it was, in Modesto for a couple of days. And they could not uh, uh, help me. Uh, so they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco. And, uh, By plane? I'm sorry? By plane or helicopter? By, uh, by ambulance, Oh wow! actually, okay. which was like, I think it was a two and a half hour drive Okay. Uh, through the Altamont Pass where I had actually worked as a, uh, a grunt putting in poles for the power lines for the windmills. Um, so as we passed the windmills, I could see them off to the side. I said, oh, I worked here. They were like, oh, really? Did you? <laughs> Um, so when I got to St. Mary's, it's like the, the world changed and the sky opened up. It was, it was a big, uh, change for me, my life. You know, I, 
they put me on this thing called the rotorest bed, which you're on your back and the, the bed moves very slowly side to side. And they do that so that your lungs don't fill up with water and you don't get pneumonia and you're, you don't get too much pressure on your body. And you don't develop uh, pressure sores because all those things will kill you. How long were you laying there? Uh, well, I was in the hospital there in St. Mary's for three months, but that wasn't just on that gurney. Uh, on that gurney, I think I was there for three weeks or something like that. Um, but I was waiting for a Dr. White to come and see me and he was supposed to be the surgeon there. And, uh, people said he was pretty good. Um, well, as it turns out, he was one of the best neurosurgeons in the country and probably the world. And I didn't know it. And he, he, uh, he made this sort of mistake of coming in dressed like a bum and eating lunch and i thought he was lost and i thought he was a bum because i had these what they call prism glasses that i could see out of I, i'm on my back but i could see the door and people coming in like with these periscope. prism glasses like a little periscope from a they're they're like kind a of mirror yeah they're kind of mirrored yeah that's funny and uh so this guy comes in uh and he's apparently dr white but i didn't know it and he says so, so mr williams as he's eating his sandwich um you got a couple options here you know, we can do surgery on you. Uh, I would be doing the surgery. Uh, and uh, that may or may not help you. Um, or we can call it good the way you are, and we can put you on a halo, uh, which is basically a metal ring that goes around your head, and they put bars to a vest. They uh, adjust these bars so that your neck and head are straight, and then they tighten them down and tighten down the bolts on your skull. Um, and I didn't trust the guy. I, you know, figured he was, you know, I don't know. He just didn't, didn't seem very professional. And so I said, well, which one would be less scarring? And he said, well, clearly, if we have to go through your neck, we're gonna, you're going to have a nine-inch scar down the back of your neck. And I said, well, then I'll take the halo. And he said, okay, that's all I need to know. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. And uh, he left, and I never saw him again. Uh, the next day, they sent me down to have a halo put on. And they had told me that the halo would be so strong that they could actually hold me up from any one of the bars and would hold my whole body weight and the thing wouldn't move. And I'm like, okay, great. So they uh, administered uh, some morphine and they started uh, screwing in the skulls, the, the screws into my skull that had the ring on it, which goes on first. And I felt every turn of the screwdriver um, they put six pounds of pressure of torque on every screw, and I, it was the most, um, most pain I ever felt in my life. And I had tears streaming down my eyes as I looked at them straight and said, this is extremely painful, and you guys need to do something about this. Even with the morphine? Even with the morphine, yeah. They had given me 0.5 grams of morphine. And they must have thought that I was joking. I, mean, I don't know how they could have thought I was joking. I mean, I, I'm, I'm basically crying, you know, uh, in their face and saying this is way more pain than anything I've experienced so far. Not even the accident was as painful as this. And uh, they just kept on trying to reassure me it's all going to be okay, Mr. Williams. You know, we're, as soon as we get this on you, it's just going to be it's going to all be fine. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And uh, they got the vest on, they adjusted the rods, they tightened everything up, they checked the torque. 
and they sent me to my room. And within two hours, the halo and the screws went down my head. You can see these big scars here. Okay, that's from the first halo they put on. And so everything they told me was bullshit. And uh, so they took me back down to the uh, place where they had done the halo. And um, I said, I hope we're not going to have to go through this same torture again. And they said, no, we got you taken care of. And they gave me one gram of morphine and I felt nothing. And so I said to them, why didn't you just do this the first time? And they t once they got that taken care of, took me up to my room. I stayed with the halo on for, th for the remaining three months. During that time, um, I had uh, occupational therapy and physical therapy, and it was those two people that actually sa saved my life because I wanted to die. And I figured, hey, if I can't feel my body, um, I don't want to be on this planet. You know, I mean, I mean, there's things down there I wanted to feel for the rest of my life, and uh, these two ladies just kept on telling me that, you know, you got a lot more to offer than stuff that was just down there. You know, there's stuff in your head. And, and the things they shared with me kept me from being depressed, uh, made me get active and want to get better. And, and one of the important things that I think helped me the most was someone told me, you know, you may not ever be able-bodied again. But if you don't try, you for sure won't. If you don't try to be better than you are right now, you for sure won't. If you don't go out and fight with all your heart, then where will you be? What will you ever accomplish? Nothing. And, uh, and when I got out of the hospital, I felt better than when I went in. Better than before I broke my neck, even. I was, uh, in some ways, enlightened. And uh, I started going to college. Um, I got my own apartment. I, you know, got a roommate. Uh, started enjoying my life. Uh, ended up uh, being a speaker for the hospital that had originally taken me in. And um, uh, uh, got on with emergency services. Um, and it's been amazing. It really has. What was that enlightening process like? What are some conclusions you came to? Well, you know, one person said to me, because I, I mean, I was, sex to me was a big deal. And they said, you know, I would always say, well, you know, I can't feel anything. So what, you know, and the, this same person kept telling me, where is sex? Where do you think sex is? You know, it's down there. No, sex isn't down there. Sex is in here. All the feelings you feel are in here. Everything that you experience is in here. Even your body movements actually occurred in here. And they were right. I mean, because right now I can wiggle my toes. In here. Now, the connection between the brain and the toes is not working. And the toes physically won't move, but I can make, I can feel them moving in my head, even though they're not moving. So, you know, I mean, I needed to know that, uh, 
there was a life after being paralyzed that you know um um and i could i could be somebody and i i I became somebody different than i was before completely different um before i broke my neck i was all about myself you know didn't give a shit about anybody else i wanted to you know go out and beat the crap out of people all the time and uh, be a badass and uh, uh, work hard and make a bunch of money and get rich and, you know, all this crap that was just me, 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 you know? And uh, and I came out a completely different person. I, I needed to be paralyzed in a way. How long did it take for you to come to those conclusions? Was it talking to your uh, OP and PT? Uh, or OT and PT? Uh, um, well, they're the ones who started it. You know, they put the seeds in there. Do you, you keep know? in touch with them today? Never. Nope. Never. I haven't, haven't talked to them. I haven't talked to them in 30 years. Some of the most influential people mm-hmm. in your life. Yep. I, I talked to them after I got out of the hospital a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually, so I was apparently a, a pretty good um, role model in the hospital. And they kept my picture, a big, like, this size picture, in the uh, rehab department for 20 years. Wow. With yeah. the halo on? No, not with the halo <laughs> After. on. Yeah. That's I had wild. a big old bushy head of hair all the way down, and I was doing a wheelie in a wheelchair when mm-hmm. I came to visit them, and they took a picture of me and put it on. Yeah. The so wall. that's how good you were when you left after having these conversations with them. And before you met them, you were contemplating suicide? Before I, yeah, when I was, after I broke my neck, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, what else, what else is there? You know, yeah. I mean, for, I mean, that, and that's the problem. People think that there's nothing else, you know, and, uh, and I was, I, I didn't grow up like a lot of people. I mean, I grew up in a tough neighborhood in uh, a very interesting place in California. And uh, things were uh, hard. And you had to be hard to be there. So um, it was nice to leave. Yeah. <laughs> How did the way that people interact with you change from before and after? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. So um, supposedly I had thousands of friends. And uh, when I went down the road, people would, hey, Fred, hey, Fred, hey, Fred. Anywhere I went in, in Modesto. Hey, Fred. I, you know, because I was, you know, a tough guy, popular, kind of, you know, well devilishly known. handsome, well known. <laughs> and um, when I broke my neck, I was invisible. All the people I thought were my friends, gone. And I, it took me a while to understand it. And I realized that they could not handle me being paralyzed unless I was willing to go back and be the same person I was before, which I wasn't anymore. And, uh, and they couldn't take that. They couldn't deal with it. Um, if I was willing to go back to partying, uh, drinking, smoking pot, snorting Coke, you know, all the things that they were doing, uh, then I was accepted. But if I wasn't, then I wasn't accepted. It was, it was just the way it was there. Uh, I remember when I came home from the hospital, my brother was so unable to connect with me. I hadn't seen him in three months. He comes past me and just says, hey, keeps on walking and leaves. Didn't give me a hug, didn't say, 
I love you, brother. Glad to see you. You know, anything like that. And that's how messed up it was. So it sounds like you had a, at least a period of loneliness. And then what broke out of that? Uh, well, I started going to college. You know, um, I wasn't dumb. I just uh, wasn't interested in the school before that. And uh, I, uh, you know, I mean, I became paralyzed. And when you're paralyzed, you can get help from the government to go to school. And I figured, hey, take advantage of it because, I mean, I, everything I had done up to that point was physical. Um, and uh, I didn't have any other skills to fall back on. I mean, I, how am I going to get a job? You know, um, when I was physically able, I could just walk down the street, walk into a place like I can do all this for you. And I'd get hired. Uh, but when you're paralyzed, you go into a place, uh, you can't do all that stuff anymore. And the stuff that you tell them you can do, they probably don't believe you. So what was that search for meaning like for, for finding a new life path? Where did you, where did you end up? I ended up across town, uh, from my old neighborhood, uh, not hanging out with those people anymore. Um, uh, going to college. Uh, working for a doctor's medical center as a public speaker, um, working for the emergency services, um, and uh, and and all. Another thing that helped me quite a bit was sports, because I'd always been a real active sports guy. I played football all through elementary school, um, and uh, the only reason why I didn't play it in high school was because I dropped out and went and got a job. Um, so when I broke my neck, uh, about two years after I broke my neck, I got approached by some guys from San Francisco who told me about a sport called wheelchair rugby. Mm. And, uh, they said, oh, you'll be great. And I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm quad, you know, how, how good can you, you know, what can you really do? And, uh, I went to their practices and started realizing it was like fantastic sport. <laughs> and uh and then it you know i mean even when you're paralyzed you're really still you're still putting out the same effort you're just doing it in a different way you might look like you're not as good as you were before but if everybody else had your same disability they'd look the same way too that's just the way it is and uh they went uh they were third place team when i came on board and the first year we won national championship that sounds like a real opportunity to build community yeah. and kind of come out of that, uh, that lonely place where people, yeah. you're invisible. Yeah. And so, so in a more broad spectrum, not like the weeks following, um, do you believe that there's like a stigma against people um, who are paralyzed? A stigma? What do you mean? Like, uh, so, so the interview just before this, I was speaking with a single mother and I never thought there was a stigma against single mothers, but mm. she, she says that she perceives one. And... You know, not living through that experience, I could never speak on it. So I'm curious if... So, like, people look at you differently? Yeah. Like, oh, that's totally true. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm curious about. And, and what's yeah. that like? Like, what, what would you want people to know who are just crossing, crossing on the street? Uh, this could be you, and uh, you wouldn't be any different. Yeah. So why treat up di anyone differently? I mean, you know, the one thing... I, I mean, if I were to fall out of my chair and fall on the ground... I'd hope to God somebody helps me, but I would be that person to help them if I wasn't the person in the chair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people 
look at me and say, oh, I'm so impressed with how you're able to survive and body, body, body. I just want to spit in their face. Patronize them? Yeah. I'm like, dude, I mean, what? You having trouble surviving right now? I mean, you know, I mean, uh, everybody really is the same. They re- I mean, for the most part. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that change so drastically and become, you get in on a pity party and everything else. But, you know, I think most rational people would learn to survive. You know, they're going to, just like they do, did when they had to get a job, when they had to leave their home, when they had, you know, move on, when they lost their job, when, you know, I mean, all these things, you, you learn to survive and get along and figure it out. And I think everybody would, would be able to do that. One of the funny things I, I like to uh, pay attention to is when people open the door for me. Because um, I can open the door just fine. And, and I love it whenever I'm like not actually going to the door. <laughs> and someone comes from like 30 feet away and runs up to the door and opens it up. I just look at him and go, I'm not going there. Yeah, it's like, dude. But that's probably coming from a place of kindness, you know. Of course it is. Yeah. But you know, you they need people need to understand that everybody is um, different, and uh, you shouldn't immediately assume somebody can't open a door just because they're in a chair. I mean, everybody I know that's in a chair can open their own door. And uh, yeah. So this is pet peeve of mine. Yeah. But something I'm curious about, uh, a really good friend of mine's brother just got in a car accident and got paralyzed uh, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what advice would you have for him and people in a similar situation about how, what are some things that, some, some conclusions you came to that helped you better your life? Well, as I said earlier, the most important one is to always remember that uh, don't let anybody ever tell you what your life's going to be. Or what's if you're going to ever get anything back any return if you're ever going to walk again if you're ever going to you know do anything that you think you you should do because yeah you may not you may not ever walk you may not ever feel your legs you may not but you know what you may and we're living in the most exciting time for paralysis ever do you have hopes for for future stem cell and other kinds oh, of research oh absolutely probably not for me I mean, it's not probably not going to happen for me, uh, but it's absolutely going to happen for others. I mean, they're going to do it. It's it's going to you know, and we don't know how it's going to manifest itself. It might end up that they have a computer chip that goes you know above and below the injury. It may be that they're able to um, bridge the gap another way. It may be stem cells. It may be um, grafting. It may it could be any number of things. Um, one of the most exciting things they're doing right now is the HAL program. Uh, are you familiar with that at all? Okay, so the HAL program is a robotic suit. And uh, for people who are completely paralyzed, you can actually have a helmet on your head and the HAL suit on, and your brain can tell HAL what to do. Oh. Yeah, and that's it's only a couple years old so give it 20 years that thing's gonna you're gonna stand up people are gonna stand up and walk away with a house suit on they're gonna be robotic that's phenomenal yeah going a a little further down that line do you feel uh, a disconnect between your mind and body or do you feel like like if you could upload your mind to the internet would would you would you want to do that would you do you have a connection to your body or disconnection from your body 
well, I, you know, giving away too much, but I totally have a connection to my body. I mean, but I also have, you know, the drive to, to live. I mean, uh, you know, if somebody were to give me the opportunity of uh, downloading myself to the computer, like there was a movie about that. Um, uh, and if it was real and you could do that, I don't know, man. That sounds like something would be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think Elon Musk is working with, with Neuralink is, uh-huh. is something along that road. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it has a lot of, yeah. a lot of interesting things because your body isn't really who you are. You know, I no. guess that's what I'm kind of getting to. Yeah. And, and what are some thoughts that you've had kind of on that? I mean, I'm sure you've, you've had a lot of time to meditate and think about how this has affected you and how most people never have even the thought of how their body, like most people don't take care of their body, you know, yeah. people call it their meat suit. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm still very connected to my body. Yeah. Uh, and I've done everything in my life to uh, keep it in good shape. Uh, I've tried real hard to uh, um, always push myself around uh, to as as rarely as possible. I, I don't let people push me around, um, and I I try to watch my skin uh, very carefully because that's that's one of the biggest problems that pneumonia for people that are in my position. I'm a C six seven quadriplegic, so I have um, for an example here. Uh, this is my C6 side, and it's it has very little hand function. Um, I can go like that, but I can't grip, okay? This is my C7 side, and you can see the loss of muscle in it, but I can grip. And this side has also a loss of forearm, pec, I mean, uh, uh, tricep. tricep and pec, and lat. And then I'm paralyzed, actually, down the middle of, of this hand and down and across my chest here. What does that feel All like, having down. one arm paralyzed and one oh, arm no, it's, functional? It's, they're both, they're both uh, feeling, the feeling is paralyzed on both sides. So you can't yeah. feel if that hand gets a poke in it or heat and stuff? Uh, it's t- to some degree. I mean, this side I feel hypersensitive on this hand. This side, this hand is numb all the time. But you can move the hand that's mm-hmm. numb, and you can't move the hand that's... Yeah. Whoa, that feels. Yeah. And th- now with hypersensitivity, that's an interesting thing, too, because yeah. it's like... Um, it's interesting. Are your, hand, are your legs hypersensitive or numb? No, I have no feeling from or movement from here down. So what's hypersensitivity like? Um, it's like having a feather touching some part of your body that's very sensitive um you know where it would make you almost giggle mm-hmm. um or actually would make you giggle and that and that's what it feels like it's it's that hyper like giggly feeling yeah okay is that why you wear the glove just to kind of stop no it? i wear the glove to protect the hand okay because the hand it doesn't heal as well oh. as this hand yeah. So there is blood flow, just not as oh, much. Yeah. yeah. There only there's blood flow throughout the whole body, or else I'd die. I mean, the body would die. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. So, so onto some troubles that you've been dealing with recently with the law and and just the way that maybe not the government, but the the Eugene people in charge of Eugene are treating you. Well, and and so I don't uh, for for information, I don't consider it that they're treating me this way. I consider that they're treating uh, the law 
and the disabled community this way. And um, the problems basically manifest themselves about 16 years ago, uh, after 9-11. Uh, a couple years after 9/11, we were going to go into um, uh, Iraq, and you know, I was really upset about it. And I was thinking to myself, well, what can I do to help or to help the, the men and women who are going over there and coming back disabled and stuff like that? And I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm in a wheelchair. I could at least you know make sure that handicapped parking spots are are being uh, monitored and taken care of, and that those people have somewhere to, to you know, go when they want to go to the store and things like that. So I started watching handicapped parking spots, and I figured this would help me too. Um, and I started noticing that there were a lot of semi-trucks that were blocking handicapped parking when they came to deliver stuff. So I started uh, talking to them about it, and they all said that they had a right to do it, and this, and that, and the other. And I, So I started looking into the law. And in uh, looking into the law, I found the law said uh, that they actually didn't have a right to block it. So I contacted the city police department, and the city police department said that it, if it was on private property, that, like a store that's private, um, that uh, even though the, the uh, public can go there, that it was up to the business owner to determine whether or not they wanted to press charges on somebody illegally blocking a handicapped parking spot, and that because those people were delivery trucks, that they they wouldn't uh, qualify. The person, obviously, the business owner wouldn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I um, downloaded the law and looked at it more carefully and found out that they were wrong. That the truth of the matter is, is that the police could go onto public or private property at any time to uh, write citations to individuals who are illegally blocking handicapped parking spots, including the business owner. So if the business owner or a semi-truck driver or anybody was to block handicapped parking at any time, they can receive a citation for that. And so I brought that law to the city police department and I said, look, here's the law. You guys tell me that this was... that." You guys couldn't go on to private property to issue citations. And they didn't believe me, even though I had the law right there for them to look at. And so um, I had started basically calling the police and trying to get them to enforce the law for 16 years, last 16 years, and bringing them the law every couple of years and showing them the law. And they have denied the law and continued to try to um, put forth this idea that they don't have a right to go on a private property. A couple years ago, I got a person with the Human Rights Commission in Eugene uh, to help me out. Her name was Erica Abbey. And she contacted the state police to get their spin on this whole thing. And she gave them the ORS that I had given her on handicapped parking and asked if it was the law. And they said yes. And she asked them if they would be willing to meet the city officials to show them the law and to encourage them to start enforcing. And they said yes. So she had she organized a meeting with the state police, the, the chief of police at that time, the planning and development department, Erica Abbey and Erica Abbey's boss, and I think the city attorney's office. And the state police came 
they presented the law, they told the city of Eugene that they could go on to public or private property at any time, and that not only could they do it, but that anybody that, would want, that they wanted to write citations, it could be someone that they train, and in, any individuals, people with, in wheelchairs could do it if they wanted to train them. Um, could go on to public or private property and issue citations to either owners, managers, or truck drivers, or anybody else that is illegally blocking handicapped parking on on uh, private property. They then um, had her removed from her office. She got fired. Mm-hmm. And continued to perpetuate this lie. What do they stand to gain from this? I'm curious why. It's, in my opinion, it's corruption. Um, I believe that they're doing it to protect businesses from the law so that they're not aggravating businesses and they're encouraging more businesses to come to this area because they don't, they're not enforcing uh, the law here. They're not enforcing handicapped parking laws, so they're not requiring the people to have legal handicapped parking. They're not um, enforcing uh, the uh, law when it comes to like hotels, making sure that hotels have adequate handicapped parking and uh, accessible rooms. Um, they're not enforcing the law um, uh, with uh, regard to businesses or the public that are blocking handicap parking. And uh, they, they like to say that they are. The, uh, one of the things they point to when they say they are is that they have these Eugene volunteers who go out and do this. The Eugene volunteers have never, neither has the city of Eugene's police department ever issued a citation to any business owner, any manager of a business, or any truck driver that has illegally blocked handicapped parking, even though it goes on every single day. And what do you think the message that they're trying to send is, or maybe inadvertently sending? Well, the message they're sending to the disabled community is, is that we don't care about you, we don't have to care about you, and we don't have to enforce the law. Uh, that is would be helping you to have a normal life like everybody else. Yeah. So, uh, and that forces me to go around to businesses and tell businesses, you're breaking the law, this is illegal, you need to stop. And Show breaking, them the law. Breaking human decency. That. That's right. And you know what that gets me? Hmm. Barred. The city of Eugene's police department has used me going to those places to tell them, because they won't, as fodder for them to tell me that I can't go to those places anymore. Pretty messed up. That's messed up stuff, man. Be, uh, beyond that, beyond parking, are there any laws or uh, things the society could change to make the lives easier for the disabled community? Well, actually, the lo the laws that are on the books are are supremely adequate. They are. Um, they're just not being enforced. I mean, right down to the planning and development department. Uh, the, the planning and development department of City of Eugene actually has their their rules are if somebody is breaking the law, handicap parking, no, no handicap parking signs, no, no handicap unloading zone, whatever else. The, they're, they're, um, what they want you to do is come to them and give them the address, show them a picture of what's going on, and they'll take care of it. Okay? And uh, they don't. Now, 
Sometimes they have. Over the last 16 years, I've brought them plenty, plenty, plenty. They've probably done five out of 40. Yeah. Are other states better or worse? That's an interesting thing and a good question. Um, it varies. Um, most of the place, I do a lot of traveling. Um, I buy and sell large pieces of equipment. So uh, most of the places I've gone are pretty darn good. Um, I've never seen anything like I see here in Eugene. It's it's so blatant. It's it's unbelievable. It really is. Um, I at one point, just to give you an example, they told me they were going to start enforcing, and they wanted this guy named Travis, uh, who was a parking person downtown Eugene, a ticket meter reader guy, head of the ticket meter readers, to enforce the law on handicap parking. And so he called me and said, hey, I've gotten permission to enforce the law on handicapped parking. And I was like, great, man. That's good because I happen to have two places I want you to go check out today. So he sent over a guy. And the guy proceeded to tell the businesses that if they removed their handicapped parking spots, that he wouldn't be able to enforce it. Break that down a little differently. So instead of enforcing the law... He told them that they could just remove their handicapped parking spots. And then he wouldn't be able to enforce the law. And they did. That's horrible. Yeah. And that's just got to be a lot to deal with. Just going to... to yeah. So then I had to go back to those people mm -hmm. and tell them, you're breaking the law. It's against the law for you to remove your handicapped parking spot. This all seems so so meaningless on their parts. Like no one's yes. benefiting. <laughs> you know, it's just detrimental. It is. So why do it? Why do it? Why not enforce the law? There's money there. There's, you know, I mean, it's $350, $450 a ticket. Um, it's unbelievable. So these, these two places that I sent this guy to, he told both of them they could remove their handicapped parking spots, and they both did. I went back to them. I told them, you're breaking the law. You're breaking state law, city law, and federal law. And they said, they told us we could do this. So then I went to the planning and development department, told the planning and development department what happened. They sent them a letter, but that's all they did. I went back after they sent them the letter, told them that that letter that they sent you, okay, that's telling you that that's, this is the law. You're required to put this handicapped parking spots back. They both put the handicapped parking spots back. They both, to this day, still use their handicapped parking spots illegally every single day, and nobody writes them a citation. If, and you can't go write on my citation, can you get trained by the state police? I can get trained by the... No, not by the state. No, it has to be the city. But the state's on your side. The city is not. The state has no problem with this. They, they understand the law. And they see the law. They, they're like, we don't, we don't get why these guys are doing this. Um, but they're not doing anything to change it either. So, yeah, there's a lot of really bad going on. I guess I was going to say, what would, what would a solution be? It seems pretty easy, though. Solution's easy. Um, but the, at the end of this mountain, what would, what would your next mountain be? Of, of, is there nothing else you'd want changed to, to better the lives of the community? Um, well, I mean, I'm a strong believer that everybody should have a job. Mm -hmm. 
I think that prioritizing uh, jobs for people with disabilities is a good thing. Um, and uh, so that is something I would be strongly for. Yeah. Um, that's not necessarily an access thing. Well, I guess it is access to a job. Um, and, uh, and I think that I think it strength, strengthens the community. I think it puts less stress on working folks. And I think it gives more meaning to a person's life. And I think it's helpful all the way around. Do you find society. meaning from your job? Yeah, but I mean, like I said, I buy and sell stuff, and I, I also d deal in some real estate. And so not an incredible amount. No, well, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I do. Well, what do you drive meaning from then? Uh, well, uh, I guess the same thing I always have driven meaning from, which is effort. Uh, you know, I'm a fighter, and. I like to fight. I I want. I need a fight. Uh, whatever that fight is, either it's work, you know, work-related fight. I mean, we all fight. I mean, you're you're fighting right now to make this work, okay? Um, and it's you know, I I enjoy doing and trying my best on things, and I call that a fight. Do you ever get stuck in a glue trap where you're just unmotivated? And, and what breaks you out of that? The glue trap? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, totally. I mean, you, you, when you're in a wheelchair, you know, you can get stuck quickly um, in, in the glue trap, so to speak, where, you know, I mean, especially if you're not uh, currently active in a, you know, working for Joe Schmo and you're working for yourself. Uh, because you you always have these times where nothing's going on. You can't find you can't find something to sell. You can't find anything worth buying, uh, or you get involved with something that's way over your head, and you're going to end up losing money on. And you know, it's, at those points, I'm you know I'm at my lowest. I mean, you, here I am. I've just gotten deep in you know, ten thousand dollars into this piece of equipment, and now it's you know I'm realizing it's only worth eleven, and I got to put two thousand into it to sell it for eleven. Yeah, you know that's rough, mm -hmm. and you you know, the brakes go on. You know, uh, I think I'm gonna stay here for a second. You know, I mean, in a couple of weeks you kind of start realizing, dude, you got to pull your boots back on and get back in the mud. Yeah, you know. Uh, and start fighting. Whew, you're a big fighter then, I take it. <laughs> well, uh, I'm yeah. curious, what what your view of the end of... Are you religious? Uh, it depends on how you look at or it. Or spiritual, I say? Yeah. And so what what do you believe is at the end of the fight? At the end of all the fighting? There's an end of the fight? You know. I mean, one day you get to let everything down. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think there is. You don't think there is? No. Every breath is a fight. Well, at some point, your breath will be the fight. And you'll fight for every breath. And at the end of that breath, you'll lose your body. And I'm hopeful that the spirit will be in a fight, too, for the next life. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, whatever existence comes after that. I mean, I, I suppose in my head, I think that um, after this body, then there is light. And then I believe that that light manifests itself in a group of lights. And that at some point, that light then spurs off into another body, whatever that body is. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, assuming it, was, if it must have felt like a near-death experience getting in the crash, what, did you have any sort of 
experience or did the did the alcohol numb any memory of it well yeah the alcohol definitely <laughs> numbed everything um and i'd i'd have to tell you that i've had a lot of near-death experiences prior to being that you did, know paralyzed and and what were those like did you experience time dilation or well i i can tell you one i was uh crossing a river uh during high water with my uncle and me and my brother uh, across a, a fish counting, uh, uh, platform. And, uh, I, I think I was about seven. Um, and he was supposed to be watching us and, uh, we weren't supposed to be there <laughs> and I slipped and I remember reaching for the cement barrier and I grabbed a hold of cement barrier and all I remember seeing were cities Cities I'd never seen before. You were drowning at this time? I, I, I think that I was thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. But all I could see were cities. And uh, it felt like it was forever, but I'm sure it was just a matter of seconds. Yeah. And then my Uncle Ben grabbed me by the shirt, back of the shirt, picked me up like a kitten and said, I don't think we're going this way. <laughs> Turned me around and walked us back off the yeah. platform. But that was one near-death experience. And if he hadn't gotten there fast enough or I hadn't grabbed that cement, I'd have gone downriver. Do you think it was a pretty peaceful place, that city, that experience? I, I don't know that there was... Uh, I didn't feel that there was peace there. I didn't feel like there was anything else there. Then you didn't feel any, any sort of fear and stuff? No, no. That's it was not. just a different place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to think what is at the end of this road, yeah. you know, at the end of this fight. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, cool. Uh, do you have any other topics that you want to bring up? I'm curious. Actually, one more thing before you before I'll give you the opportunity to the floor. Uh, when you eventually started playing rugby and stuff, and you you went off, what was the dating scene like? Well, um, interesting, actually. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, before I broke my neck, I mean, I thought about this. This is what thought, not this. Yeah. You know, for podcast listeners, it's pointing at us. <laughs> and uh, and and I didn't. I, I only thought about myself, and I didn't think about the other person as much. You know, I mean, not that I. I mean, I was very attracted to the other person usually, um, but it, it. I mean, it was more like for me, and uh, and I think that the biggest thing I I changed and realized was that you know the other person is just as important. And in some cases, more important. And I think that really helped me with my sex life. Um, and uh, and you start, you know, you start thinking more about a relationship and a friendship and love and you know stuff like that instead of just getting on, getting off, and getting out. You know, um, and uh, and so yeah, it was a big change. It sounds like a big change. Uh, it seems to be a common theme with everyone I've spoken to so far, uh-huh. is that at some point in their life they made a shift between living for themselves and then yeah. living for other people in a community. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's 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 you know it's kind of ever evolving. I'm curious. Yeah. Just just one piece of uh, any closing thoughts that you have. Um. No, not really. I mean, you know, here I am. What can I say? Just keep fighting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I love it. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, 
for everyone else, subscribe, share with friends, and uh, see you in a couple days. All right. Thank you. Thank you.